All right, kids ages uh, three to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. And there they go. The rest of you, if you have a Bible, turn into the uh, book of 1 John. It's in the New Testament. 1 John is towards the back of your Bibles. Wow, I'm really far back today. All right. So you go, uh, start in the back, you got Revelation, you got Jude, 3 John, 2 John, surprise, surprise, 1 John comes next. So, um, as you go to the left. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's cool. There, the text is in your order of worship this morning. It's in your bulletin. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we've got a bunch on the back table we want to give you because we think it's really important to have one. So uh, take one of those. You don't have to grab one now because you might be embarrassed by that. But, but grab one on your way out. Uh, but get, get the word in front of you if you can so that you know that I'm not making this stuff up because that doesn't help anybody. Okay? So let me, let me help us ease into this time. One of the amazing things that I think is awesome about the Bible is that it is written to a particular people in a particular time, right? I think, I think all of us to some degree get that. Maybe if you're new to the Bible, uh, you think that Christians believe it kind of just dropped out of heaven and it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of this universal message for a universal kind of people. Uh, but, but in fact, it was written to a particular people at a particular time. But at the same time, as we see uh, time and time again, it speaks to us as well. And this book is a great example for us. Because it's easy for us to believe that our issues, the things we deal with today, are unique, right? That nobody else in the history of the planet has dealt with what we deal with. And then we read this letter that's speaking to a people who are being upset by others in the church, by others who claim to be Christians, who say you can be a Christian and you can reject lots of things that have been traditionally held by Christians. You can reject things like the humanity of Jesus. That Jesus wasn't really human. It doesn't really matter if he lived, died, or whatever. They're saying that you can reject things like uh, the biblical vision for sexuality. Like they're, they're saying you can be a Christian but not actually believe any of the stuff that's in there as long as you kind of take what you want. See, we think that's our issue. That's not our issue. That's not a 21st century issue, nor is it a 1st century issue. It's a human issue. So how does the gospel relate to those things? And what marks out a true Christian? How can I be sure that I'm there? That's, that's what this letter specifically speaks to. And so last week, if you were here, you remember, we spoke to some of those polarities. You remember I talked about the, this kind of, John is this bipolar dude. And I mean that not in the disorder way. But like, he, he lays out polarities without any middle ground. Light, dark, love, hate. Like there's no new... Wow. That dude was getting it up Thornrose. Like that was fast. Uh... So it's, you know, light, dark, love, hate. There's no middle ground. Like, that was what he talked about. And I talked about how it, that's maddening at times. This week, he looks at something else that's related, but maybe not in the way we think. He looks at the question of what we want. The question of what we love. So if you have your spot in uh, the book of 1 John, our habit here is to stand in honor of God's Word. So if you do that, um, I mean, we're, this morning we're in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Love for you to follow along if you can. As we do so, let me remind us before we read this, this is God's Word. This is not something we've picked for us. Christians did not pick this. Uh, Christians did not decide on this rather than something else. The Word of God lays claim to us, and so we need to hear it in that way this morning. Hear it. Do not love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. 
But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you great praise for all that you do. Now, some of us are in this room, and we are here because you have been pursuing us with a relentless pursuit, and we can't get away from you. And for some of us, that's maddening, because we just want you to leave us alone. Others of us are so encouraged by that and thankful that you are a God who does not give up on us. You chase us. You don't wait for us to come to you. You come to us. And we are, we are happy and excited about that. And others of us are here And we're not sure what we want. We say we want Jesus, but in the end we want other things. God, I pray that you would lay bare our hearts this morning. Not so that we can feel shame, but so that you can apply the balm of the gospel and heal us. For we are in need of you. The one who speaks, not least of all. And so, Lord, I pray, I ask that you would open our hearts to receive you, our ears to hear you, our eyes even to see your glory. Show us your glory this morning in the face of Jesus Christ, we ask. And speak for your servants listen. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So my favorite part of weddings, and, and we're, getting, we're coming up on that season, right? That season of weddings that comes up in the summer. My, my favorite part of weddings, uh, believe it or not, it's the vows. Because apart from when the bride enters the room, the groom sees the bride for the first time. And by the way, like, if, if you are in the process of moving towards marriage, or you're getting ready to get married, please, please, please do not do that thing where you take bride and groom pictures before the wedding begins. Because you are ruining, like, the best part for everyone who's sitting there. Like, everyone's sitting there waiting to see the eyes of the groom when he first sees his bride. Now, if you're a lady, you're going to notice they're going to turn to you, but they're all going to do this. They're going to look behind him real quick because they want to see his expression because it's always priceless. But apart from that, my favorite part of weddings are the vows because that's where the money is. And you know how they go, right? Some variation of this. To have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, in abundance and in want, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others to love and to cherish till death do us part. Those are great, aren't they? I love them. I especially love the forsaking all others. I love that because it speaks of something important. When you get married, your loves need to be aligned. Right? When you get married and you you have a spouse, that doesn't mean you no longer have friends. Right? However, it does mean that there's, there's an alignment that needs to happen. It's not that you don't love others. It means that you love one person before all others. The relationship, the marriage relationship in the Bible is the only exclusive relationship between humans. In fact, it's the only exclusive relationship besides the one that we have with God. The one that we worship. And that's what this text is about this morning. It's about what we love And the cool thing is, everyone loves. Everybody loves. Christian or not, everybody loves, which means this passage is for everybody. Not just for a couple of us. So we're going to look at this passage in two ways. There's always an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful for you. Uh, We're going to look at attending our loves and amending our loves. Really simple. Attending them and amending them. All right, let's get started with attending them with these dueling loves. Look down at verse 15. John says, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, now, this is a hard verse to understand because of the cultural presuppositions we bring to this. Okay? Um, for instance, if you're not a Christian, this verse, what I just read, kind of sums up who you think Christians are. We are stodgy world haters. Right? We don't like anything. We don't, we don't have fun. People are just stuffy, like Ned Flanders, uh, whose kids are in the back yard jumping on a trampoline saying they're going to jump up to heaven. Like that's, that's who you think Christians are. Um, and if you are a Christian, that verse reminds you of attitudes maybe you grew up with, maybe you're there right now, that kind of reject certain kinds of music because of the rhythm. Because a certain rhythm, did you know this? Certain rhythms make you rebel. Who knew? Right? Uh, they, they make you rebel and, and incite things that aren't good. And, then, and so you can't listen to certain kinds of music. You can't go to the movies. Things like that. So we're going to get at what he means when he says don't love the world. But before we do, we need to point out something else. We need to point out the fact that there is a dichotomy here. So remember, if you were here last week, you remember I said that John constantly pushes us with laying out these two polarities. Light, dark, love, hate, all this stuff. And he allows us no middle ground. And so guess what? He's doing it again. He's doing it again. But to get at what he means, we have to understand something about how the Bible and those who wrote the Bible understand humanity. Understand us. Okay? We are children of the Enlightenment, or at the very least, children of Greek philosophy. And in the Enlightenment, and in Greek philosophy before that, it understood the human being to be fundamentally a thinker. Okay? You with me? You are fundamentally a thinker, which means that if, if something is going to happen in you, if you're going to have a change, the important thing to know is that what we need to get at is what our thoughts are. If we get our thoughts straight, we get our lives straight. So you see this in religious and non-religious thought. Right? Religious thought and irreligious thought. Secular thought. So, on the secular line is the notion that education will solve all of your ills. Right? That the great thing that, that West, you see this especially as, as um, secular Western societies approach third world countries. That what we can bring to the third world is our money and our education. Because if they have education, they'll have everything. Right? If you get your thoughts right, you learn how to think right, you can do anything. Everything will go better. You'll get rid of things like violence and other social ills. And then we have riots on college campuses. Ones known for their free thought. Like Cal Berkeley. On the more religious line, right, you get the worldview warriors. And if some of you are there, I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm not. I'm going to step on your toes, and I'm sorry if it it steps. But here it is. The worldview warriors who who think that we can think, if we can think from a biblical worldview consistently... If we can just get our biblical worldview right, then everything will line up within it. Until we've spent years doing that and can't leave behind our racism or our moralism. Not very biblical. Not very consistent. Why can't we just get consistent? Now, that's, it. that's if we think that we're thinkers. Uh, others of us, maybe we've rejected that, and so we think that we're fundamentally doers, that we're defined by what we do, how we act, our wills. Um, that, that What this means is that we're defined and guided by our wills. In this sense, it isn't necessarily thinking the right things, but doing them, that fake it till you make it. I'm just going to do these things, and everything else will come along. Now, as I say both of those, neither of them are necessarily... Uh, Bad. They're kind of like perspectives, but it's not the way the Bible understands us fundamentally. The Bible says that fundamentally we aren't thinkers and we aren't doers. Instead, we're fundamentally lovers. That we will pursue that which we love no matter what we think. 
And our wills will follow what we love. We will devote ourselves to it. And that's because the Bible claims that you and I were made for love. That we were made for that. Now, think with me. I know most of us aren't huge readers of the Old Testament, even if, even if you are from a church background. So, Jesus does a really helpful thing for us when he summarizes the entire law. It's like, great, I got Cliff's notes. Jesus tells me, here it is. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of those do's in the Bible, right? All those things that we think are there to, whether whether you're church background, unchurch background, all those things we think are there to somehow uh, help our lives go well. Jesus says, it's all summarized in this, love the Lord. Be a lover of God. Humanity was made to love God, to depend on God, to give him ultimate significance in our lives. Now, Just like in a marriage, that does not mean that loving God means you can't love other things. What it does mean is that there is one love that must be ultimate. And that everything else has to line up underneath those things. And that is what John is getting at here. Look again. Because he lays out a polarity. If you love the world or the things in it, the love of the Father is not in you. It's that ultimate love he's talking about. It's what Jesus was talking about that we heard heard read this morning. Right? You can't serve two masters. You're going to love one. What are you going to do with the other? Come on. Hey, thank you. We're not that Presbyterian. You're going to love one. You're going to hate the other. It's an either or. Now the problem is, is that that's confusing because he says, don't love the world, but the most famous verse in the Bible is, for God so loved the world. So like, what, what's up with that? Well, we need to know what he means by loving the world. But thankfully, he tells us. Look down at verse 16, because he he tells us exactly what it means. He says, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Now, stop there, because this makes it really specific. So let me break this down really quick. That word that he uses for desire. Unfortunately, uh, for many of us, we think that the Bible's really down on desire. It's not down on desire, but we only have one word in uh, English for the word desire, and so that kind of messes with us. Some of your older translations may have not desire of the flesh, it may have the lust of the flesh. It's actually a better translation of this, because that word that he uses there in the original Greek is a word that doesn't mean desire, it means misordered desires, inordinate desires. Uh, A lust. The problem is that you and I tend to associate the word lust with sexuality. But lust doesn't mean sexuality. It means a desire to consume, to control, to possess. What all of this means is that these things that he mentions aren't necessarily bad things. The issue is that we are pursuing it at an over-the-top level. So let me break down exactly what he's talking about. Now, when he says the desires of the flesh, every one of us, like if you're over the age of 13, probably think sexuality, right? Desires of the flesh. If we're, even worse if we use the word lust in there, right? The lusts of the flesh. That must be what it means. Well, it is in part. This is dealing with the drive for satisfaction. That drive, whether that comes sexually, whether it comes in some other sensual way. Food, drink, drugs, comfort. So what this is, is placing that drive, the drive for satisfaction, as our motivating drive. The ultimate thing. The ultimate thing in our lives is, I must be satisfied. And life is not worth living. I don't really matter if I'm not satisfied. Got me? 
Now, the lust of the eyes or the desire of the eyes is a little harder to pin down. And, and if you're a dude and you've been a Christian for any amount of time, especially in your college years uh, or high school years, you probably associate that word, especially, again, if you're using the order, older translation of lust of the eyes with pornography. Uh, in, in a sense, that's on the right track, but not for the reason you think. That lust of the eyes, that inordinate desire that comes from the eyes is the desire to possess. It's the desire to control. It's the desire to own to use. It's a power-based desire. Okay? The last one, the pride of life, that is seriously confusing because of the translation. Okay? And so I know I'm doing a lot of technical language stuff. Bear with me if you can. Right? So, the pride of life. There are a couple different words for life in Greek. Most of the time when John says life, he uses a different one than the one he does here. When he talks about eternal life, life everlasting, life of the age, all that stuff, that is not the same word he uses here. Here he uses a word that, is, that has to do with um, your stuff. It has to do with the stuff of your life. Your possessions, which is why some of your Bibles have a little bitty number in there, and you look down and it says, or possessions, right? This phrase probably means, probably means the pride of possessions. This is the trust we lay in our stuff. Now... What do these things have to do with the world? I'm glad you asked. I love it when you guys ask what I'm about to hit in my sermon. So this is awesome. Like, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, so when John says the world here, he doesn't mean the world in general. Like, as if he's saying, love God, hate the dirt. Love God, hate everything that's going on in the world. He, he's talking about our fallen humanity that's hostile to God. And these three things that he mentions here epitomize that. They epitomize that. They epitomize the things that we look to to be God for us. Think about it. Sex, power, and money. These are the things that we think, and if you're here this morning and you think this is not true of you, I I would encourage you to dig a little deeper. These are the things that we think will make our lives better. Not all three of them. Some of us have one, right? If I can just have power, if I can just get my money straight, If I can just have the next conquest, whether it's real or virtual, everything will be okay with me. We think they'll make us whole if we have them. We love them. We worship them and we serve them until they do. The Bible calls this idolatry. They are false gods. And so what John is saying is that you can't serve God and these things. You can't love both in an ultimate way. You will love one, you'll end up hating the other. That's just the way your heart works. You're like, nuh-uh. God kind of made us. He kind of knows how our hearts work. He designed them. Now, I know you have lots of questions, right? So stick with me. I'm going to try and answer as many as I can. But we need to get to this last point first. Let's look at eternal love. See, everything that John is saying is based on an assumption. And the assumption comes from the central message of Christianity. That's the gospel. It's based on the idea, though, that we were made, like I said before, to love God. To depend on Him. But we no longer do. We were made to love God, but we betrayed Him and turned from Him. But here's the problem. You and I were made to be lovers of something. So if we want to turn from the one we were made to love, we can't suddenly say, well, I'm just not going to love anymore. That's like saying, um, you know what? I know that I'm made to breathe, but I'm just not going to breathe anymore. I don't like air. I'm just not going to breathe. (gasps) Okay, I could do that for a while, but you get the point. It can't happen. 
The story of the Bible is that we are now stuck loving, giving ultimate significance to anything but God. Right? Uh, the Apostle Paul, one of the earliest Christians, one of the writers of the New Testament, said in the book of Romans that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for created things. To worship created things. And that is what the Bible calls sin. I know that we, we think that sin is an issue of behavior, but it's more a problem, not of behavior, but of desire. It's an issue of love. Because you and I will always do what we want. Let me say that again, because I want to make sure we all got that. You and I will always do what we want to do. And you're like, nuh-uh. And I'm glad you said that, because others have dealt with this, right? The great American uh, theologian from the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a book called The Religious Affections, in which he dealt with this very issue in a very robust and complete way. And one of the things he says is, someone will say to me, what if someone is holding me at knife point for my coin purse? This is way back in the day. They didn't do wallets. So coin purse, right? And, you, and you're like, yeah, what if someone's holding me up? What if someone's trying to coerce me with violence? Well, you would rather do what they say than get shivved, right? You would rather do, you would rather get rid of your money than risk your life because you will always do what you want. At that moment, your life is worth more to you than your coin purse. We always do what we want, See, we seek these things, sex, money, power. We seek them to make us whole, to save us. But here's the problem that John points out, points out there in verse 17. Look there. He says, the world and its lusts are passing away. You see the problem? They can't possibly deliver for you. They can't possibly deliver for you because they are like a puff of smoke. It's like, poof, they're here and gone. And you know this, Right? You know this, because some of y'all have been pursuing one of these or more than one of these. As a matter of fact, all of us, to some degree, are pursuing one of these or more than one of these, and it's never enough. When do you have enough money in your savings account, your 401k, that you finally feel like, I can rest and no longer worry about money? When? Y'all are like, Rick, we're not that wealthy. I get it, okay. When do you get enough stuff in your house? When you have enough possessions, when you have enough status through your cars or your building or whatever it is, that you finally think, I've arrived. I'm good. When do, you, when do you have enough influence? When do you have enough of people's affection where you feel like, I am so loved now, I need not the love of another. I need not influence over another person. I'm good. But instead we're we're frantically, how do I keep it? How do I keep it? How do I keep it? They can't deliver. So John says instead, the one who does the will of God will remain forever. Now, I need to make this clear because this sounds like so much religious thought, right? It's like the, I do what God wants and he gives me the goodies. I know, kind of, but not, but not really. Because you see, the, if the Bible is right, and you and I are lovers first and foremost... Right? If we are lovers first and foremost, then our issue is worse than we thought. The issue is not just, I'm not doing the right things. That would mean we're fundamentally doers. Or I don't believe the right things. That means we're fundamentally thinkers. But it's, we're made to love God, but now we're stuck loving everything else. And what that has done is it's made us guilty. It's made us broken and stuck in that sin. And it's made us alienated from the one we were made to love. And so religion would tell you, and some of you have been in churches where you've heard this. 
Religion would tell you, do more. But Christianity tells you, Jesus did it all. See, Jesus came to deal with our misordered loves, and he came to reorder them. He lived perfectly. He died sacrificially in our place. And so to do the will of God is not to do a set of rules. Jesus tells us exactly what it is. John, in, in John's gospel, not his letter, in his gospel, chapter 6, verse 29, someone asked him, uh, Jesus, what must I do to get eternal life, to do the will of God? Jesus says, oh, I got it. This is what it means to do the will of God. Believe in the one he has sent. He says, me. Put your faith in me. To remain forever, our loves have to be reordered. And that means coming to Jesus. Okay? Now, the problem is, is that everything that I just said is in the realm of a theoretical. And so a lot of times we can just go, amen, we're good, let's sing a hymn and get out of here, and we're left in the realm of the thinker. And if you're not a Christian, this all sounds funny, right? Because, but if you are, you're probably like, listen, Rick, my faith's in Jesus. I have forsaken all others. Well, let's see. Let me give you a few ways to see whether these, these are issues for you. Okay? What the Bible calls idols. Let's see if they're an issue in your life. We'll call the first one the anger test. Okay? A few tests. Just take a test. No big deal. No one's, no one's, no one's keeping score here, but just for you. What I mean by the anger test is this. What is it that when it is taken from you, you get angry really quick? Like, you have something, whether that's your time, your money, uh, your respect. And when it gets taken from you, when something happens to you, it gets challenged, your blood boils fast. Like, it's a shot, and you're like, ah, what is it? Is it your reputation? Is it when the stock market takes a hit? Is it when someone just won't respect your time? Is it when you're not comfortable? You see, we will always respond with anger when something we find ultimate is threatened. Always. It's a natural response to those who feel like we need to protect ourselves. Because what is ultimate is what we think is going to give us life. And if someone challenges what is going to give me life, you straight, I'm going to get angry about it. Right? If I'm starving and I have a plate of food in front of me and someone takes it, yes, I'm going to get up in their grill because I need that to live. And so when we get angry, it's because we believe someone is threatening what I need to live. That's the anger test. The second is what uh, some have called the life isn't worth living test. It goes like this. Life isn't worth living. I don't have value or worth unless I have blank. I don't have worth, uh, life isn't worth living. I don't have value unless I have a spouse or kids. Maybe it's influence, financial security, someone who gets me. Fame, ministry. Or maybe something as, as uh, obscure as just being productive, right? What fills in that blank for you? Can I tell you, if it's anything other than Jesus, then there's an idol there. It's a misordered love. Something else is ultimate for you. The third one is the, what, what I like to call the free time thoughts and treasure test. 
the free time, thoughts, and treasure test. Where do you find your money flowing most freely? Is it to Jesus and his causes? Or is it to your comforts? Your, uh, your possessions? What's going to give you good social standing? What about uh, where, where your daydreams go? Do you just end up dreaming about that bigger house? That new car? Kids that listen to you? Right? Parents that listen to you? Right? You see, even Jesus said that where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. The last one is what I like to call the Jesus at the door test. Okay? And I just happen to have a door right there. How convenient. If Jesus is standing at that door and he says, I need... I want you to come follow me. But to do so, you have to leave behind blank. Will you? Jesus says, I need you to follow me. I want you with me. But you'll have to leave behind your financial security. Your bank account's going to tank. Your safety. I'm going to need you to go somewhere where Americans are not welcome. For me. I'll be with you but I need you to go. Your ability to express your sexuality. I'm going to need, I want you to come with me. But that is not something that you're going to be able to express for the rest of your life. What about your reputation? Don't you see? You can't have two lovers. This is the one where the rubber meets the road. If Jesus is standing there and he says, I want you to come with me, you have to leave this behind, you go, no. You should love me and let me do what I want. Then don't you see the one you really worship isn't the one at the door. It's the one you're unwilling to follow him. It's the one you're unwilling to leave behind to follow him. You were made for exclusive loves. Now, some of you are arguing with me right now because you're like, Rick, there's nothing wrong with financial security. No, there isn't. There's nothing wrong with my sexuality. No, you're right. You're right. That's the most insidious thing about sin. Because you see, we culturally think sin is doing bad stuff, but the Bible says, no, that's not it at all. Most of the time, it's about taking good things and making them God things. It's about taking things that are good and saying, no, no, now I'm going to treat you as God. A 401k is a great retirement plan, but it is a terrible God. Sexuality is a good gift. It is a gift made by God. But it is a terrible thing to worship. Power and influence are good things. They are awful gods. You see, we think these things can make us right. You and I, we know intuitively there is something wrong with us and we want something to make us right. If only, if only I can be in control, I will be okay. If only I can have enough money, if I could just get that next promotion, if I could have this person to love me, if I can, if I can finally prove my dad was wrong when he said I'd never make it, if only I can be certain that no one will hurt me again, I will be okay. Life will be worth living. If only I had a spouse, I would never be lonely again. But here's the problem, friends. When is it enough? When is it enough? Look, I know you don't believe me. 
I know you think that I'm wrong and that uh, the vast history of biblical interpretation and Christians over the centuries and millennia are wrong, that you're seeing things right and, and maybe you're the only one. Uh, maybe you're the only one seeing things clearly, but are you? Because you see, John tells us these things are passing away. They cannot be enough for you because you were made for something eternal. Because you are. Nothing that passes away will be enough for you. You were made for God. But here's the other problem. When you fail these gods, when, when you make the bad financial move and it tanks your stocks, when you, uh, or make the bad financial move and you just don't have any money left in your checking account, okay? Let me speak to everybody in the room. Uh, or in your wallet, even further, okay? Or um, if you disappoint someone, and they leave you. Or you mess up at work, and you don't get the promotion. Those gods are relentless, aren't they? See, you think you're using them, but in the end, if you can't live without them, they're using you. Idols cannot save, do not forgive, and will not love. But listen to me. Jesus is the only God who saves you instead of asking you to save yourself. Saves you, serves you, instead of asking you to serve Him. Jesus is the only God who forgives you fully when you have failed Him completely. And He is the only God who loves you when you hated Him. This, this idolatry is not just pointless. It is pointless. But it's not just pointless. It is a forsaking of the God you were made for. It is replacing the ultimate, the, uh, the exclusive relationship that you were made for with another. It is spiritual adultery. And it is heinous in the eyes of God. The good news is, is that Jesus died for your idolatry. He died for my idolatry. The gospel is true. Just repent of it and turn to him. And that leaves us with remaining. Maybe you're here this morning and you're seeing this idolatry for the first time. Maybe you're just confused. I don't know. Uh, but maybe you're seeing it for the first time either as a non-Christian or as a Christian. Right? Maybe you've proclaimed, that, yes, I am a Christian, but now maybe you're seeing something different. And you're wondering, what now? Well, let me give you a, first, let me give you a couple things as a what now. First, we need to see that this is not a one-time test. Those tests that I laid out are not like, you do them and you're like, okay, I'm good. They're not like, you know, the SATs, that once you're in college, you no longer care about them, right? This is the weird lie of the Christian life that we tend to put out there. We tend to think that as we grow, at, that as we're shown things, that we need God less and less, right? That as I grow, I will actually need God less because he's, I'm, I'm building a foundation. And that foundation started with, with trust in Jesus and it moved up to turn away from these things. And we just kind of get higher and higher. And God's down there and isn't he great? And if for some reason any of this collapses, I have him. But I don't need him as badly. That is a lie from the pit of hell. John's command shows that. And it's interesting here. It's hard to see in the English. But again, in the original, in the Greek, this command is progressive. It means don't continually be loving the world. And if that is the case, we need to see that these questions are things we don't say one time. We revisit often. Yes, right now I'm doing good. 
Jesus, if you're in worship, you're like, I've just gotten done with those worship songs, and the team is awesome, and I just feel the love of Jesus in me. I want to do everything out of the passion. And then you leave this place, and it's like, all of a sudden, you walk back in your house like, <gasps> everything's out of control. Revisit the test. That idol took first place again. We need to keep coming back to them. Idolatry isn't a non-Christian issue. It's a human one. Uh, The great father of our tradition, John Calvin, said the human heart is a factory of idols. Which means that it keeps making them over and over and over again. So our passage here tells us to keep returning to these tests to see if our lives are being disordered. If our loves are being disordered. But lastly, i got to tell you, it isn't enough to see these things. This is where the rubber meets the road. Remember what I said, we aren't primarily thinkers, we're primarily, primarily lovers, which means just to see that, oh yes, I struggle with an idol of control. Isn't that nice? Right? That's not enough. We have to repent. We have to turn from that. Repentance is more than just awareness. If you are married, listen to me, and there, if you are married and there is another person, a third party, who is ch- getting between you and your spouse, being aware of it, isn't enough, is it? Like, oh, isn't that nice? This person is seeking the affection of my spouse. That's an interesting thing to note. No, it's not interesting to note. You get that person away from you and away from your spouse as fast as possible. Repentance is going to look different depending on what our issues are, but it needs to happen. Here's what I mean. If, it, if, if you struggle with um, influence and power, right? Like, like that's where you run to. Frankly, that's generally where I run to, okay? Uh, if you struggle with influence and power, then maybe it's going to look like disappointing people intentionally because you know that you're not enough. But Jesus is. If it's money... If we struggle the idol of money, then maybe, you know, and, and what I mean by that is we've thought there are two categories. There's either the overspenders or there's the responsible people who save, right? <laughs> Your idol for money doesn't just mean that you spend a lot. Sometimes it means you save a lot. And so maybe repenting of that idol means growing in your generosity, Being willing to say, my money does not save me. I can give it away freely. Instead of hoarding it. If it's comfort, then may I suggest that self-denial and fasting may be helpful. To remind us that we don't live on bread alone. Here's the important thing though, and I need you to get this. This is why this point came last. You don't do these things to get brownie points with God. You have all the righteousness you need in Jesus. Fasting ain't going to help it. And replacing Jesus with fasting is like replacing the sun with a birthday candle. Ain't enough light there, guys. But what it does is trains our loves. Just like if you are married, when you first started dating your spouse, you had no clue. No clue how to love them well. Right? And what did you do? You tried some things. Oops, that didn't work. Tried some other things. Nope, not that one. And you kept trying. And then you read books like the, the love languages. And you're like, now I know. And then you try it. Like, nope, that didn't work either. 
man, what? Is, I can't find a combination on this woman. Like, what is it? You train your loves. There is nothing wrong with any of these things we've talked about today, except when we make them ultimate. But when we continue to return to God as our chief love through Jesus, these things line up under that love in thankfulness to the one who gives them. And the one who gives us more than them. The one who gives us himself. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need your grace. And so we ask that you would pour that out on us. No matter where we are, Lord, our loves are disordered. And, and that, is, that is not a problem just of the, the, the folks whose lives look like a train wreck. That is a problem of everyone. That is our issue. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts up, reveal us, reveal those places where we need to repent, where we have placed other things before you, where maybe we've even replaced something that we call you, but it's not you at all. Because we never realize you're not looking for good, you're looking for dependent. And so whatever this God is that we think we can be moral enough for, we pray that you would help us to put those gods away and to come to you. We can't do that on our own. You, Jesus, have to give us repentance. And so we plead with you to do so. We ask that you would do it, not just so that it's something that resides in our heads, but in our hearts and motivates our actions, that we would do what we want, which is to do everything for your glory and for the good of others. And we ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.